Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about Buddhist meditation practice in our tradition. So, if you're new and you aren't familiar with our meditation tradition, you can find information uh, on our meditation practice at the link at the bottom of the screen. It has a booklet on how to meditate. That's the first step. If you want to ask questions, you should first know what it is that we do. So maybe read that. There's even a frequently asked questions link on that page, I think. You can find information about our courses on that website as well if you're interested in doing our at-home meditation course or you want to take the leap to eventually do an in-person course at our center. Those of you who have done such courses or are familiar with our work and have questions, well, this is the place for you. We're looking for questions uh, about your own practice that have immediate importance to you and not intellectual or curiosity questions. You can go ahead and type your questions in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes gathering the questions. And once you've asked your question, you can spend the rest of the 15 minutes just practicing meditation, walking or sitting, kind of clearing your mind and preparing yourself to have a fruitful Dhamma discussion or Dhamma session, listening to answers on the Dhamma. So I will be back at 15 minutes after the hour to begin answering questions.
All right, that's 15 minutes. So we're back here to answer questions. From here on, we'll ask that the chat be reserved for questions only. Anything else will simply be removed. So if you still have questions, post them at any time, and we'll ask them in order of priority. Again, focusing on meditation questions that are practical to your own practice. Thank you, Bhante. We do have some questions. When practicing mindfulness meditation, with regards to the feelings, we are encouraged to be more precise with the noting, such as rising-falling, liking-disliking, warm-cold, walking, standing, sitting, etc. But with the other senses, it's recommended to stay with the primary sense, such as just seeing, thinking, hearing, etc. Why is that? Just a second, I'm having technical difficulties. Okay. Shall I repeat the question, Bhante? No, it's okay. Uh, so f with physical, it's okay to diversify a little bit like that. For many physical experiences, you can just note feeling, but physical experiences are the four elements, and they manifest themselves in different ways. Seeing is really it's just simple, just seeing. And it really is just more valuable to note the senses as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. This is according to the Satipatthana Sutta. You don't have to worry about why or anything. You just note the body, the movements of the body as movements of the body. Um, but I guess for things like liking and disliking, they are actually distinct. I mean, liking is not disliking. They are distinct realities. But seeing is really just seeing. How can we refrain from reacting with boredom in situations where we are doing repetitive tasks, such as working? Well, you don't have to refrain, you have to learn. And so we have to observe that you get bored and denote bored, bored. Trying to refrain is conducive to, bore, to more aversion. Boredom is a type of aversion. It's not actually, boredom is kind of inaccurate. It's fine to note bored, but the truth of it is it's just an aversion You're, you don't like. So you have to just note bored or disliking. And if you try to refrain, that would be counterproductive because it would create more aversion. Sometimes when meditating, my mind wanders constantly, specifically with thoughts, and after the session, I don't really feel I've meditated or been mindful, despite noting. Any tips? Well, mindfulness is a momentary thing, so you have to find moments when you can apply it as noting thinking, even when you've been thinking for a long time. It takes time to cultivate that skill. 
It's definitely something new for most people when they begin. So you have to be patient and, and work at it. Try and find those moments. It's helpful if you try and find those moments in, in daily life. Like right now, you're hearing this answer. You should try to find moments. And if you find the more of those moments that you find, the more skilled you'll become, of course. It's not magic. It's not mysterious. Uh, as you uh, cultivate that skill more frequently, you'll become uh, more skilled. And you'll find yourself wandering less. You'll also begin to, of course, notice things that cause you to, to wander. You'll notice things that are cause you, causing you stress and suffering. And just that noticing helps to alleviate that because you become less inclined towards those kind of inclinations, those kind of states of mind. You, become, you get less triggered and therefore less distracted. But um, one thing that about what you're saying, you, you seem to be uh, of the the idea that uh, there, there's no benefit to it, and so you may have a sort of a, a skewed idea of what the benefit should be. The benefit is not that your mind stops wandering, per se. It's not that you stop thinking. It's really mostly that you just stop reacting. And so, what the first step towards that is to see that this clinging. The, the expectations and things like that are only causing you stress and suffering. So even the desire for a good meditation is causing you stress because you can't get what you think is a good meditation. And that's not really what good meditation is about. It's not about getting a peaceful state or getting what you want. It's about letting go of those expectations. And you let go of them because you see that, oh, this isn't working. So one thing that you're seeing based on your question, very important, is that the mind is not under your control. Even though you're working, you still can't control it. And so that helps you change your perspective to stop trying to be in control. And that's very conducive, very important and in integral to uh, letting go, which, of course, brings more peace and happiness and so on. But you have to stop expecting and what well, you have to learn that the expectation is what's causing you stress and suffering the expectation of some kind of result or good benefit or good feeling coming from the practice. And you'll see that just by by persisting. You'll see that you, you're not in control and you can't force your mind to be calm. Is my understanding correct? that mindfulness is lost immediately after somebody stops applying themselves, that a person needs to consciously refresh mindfulness every single moment? Well, it's not quite like that. It's a habit. It's a skill, or however you want to describe it. It's, it's um, an inclination of mind, or it involves inclination. So the, the Buddha said the more you engage in a certain practice or a certain mental habit, the more... Uh, your mind inclines towards that ha as a habit. That's how habits work. So you have a lot of different and often conflicting habits in the mind, and mindfulness is going to conflict and interact with those and going to compete with our other habits. But as you cultivate it, well, it becomes more and more your inclination, and so you don't lose everything if you just stop. It, it's more of a slow and gradual process of either 
becoming more habitually mindful or becoming less habitually mindful depending on your other activities. But uh, yeah, it is something you have to do every moment. It just does become more habitual and more a part of who you are as, as you cultivate it. So easier and more more fruitful, more frequent. In evening meditation, my body sensations are strong, and therefore I can fix my mind on them. In the morning, however, the sensations are very subtle, and I cannot focus. How do I improve morning meditation? Again, we're not concerned with making our meditation be one way or another, so you have to avoid looking at one condition as better than another condition. What you're seeing is impermanence and kind of the uh, uncontrollable nature of the mind. You want it to be a certain way, and it's not. Or whether you want to or not, you're you're just faced with this difference. Now, you shouldn't have expectations about what you're going to encounter in meditation. So, the, you you talk about bodily sensations; they're not the only thing. You know, there are four four satipatthana. So, you shouldn't try to note something or or try to find something that's not there. Uh, that, that being said, subtle isn't a problem. Subtle things you can note, whether whether they're bodily or mental. But you shouldn't be, again, seeking out something that's not presenting itself to you. You should focus on what's presenting, you're presenting itself to you. Start with the stomach. The stomach is fairly gross. If you can't feel it in the beginning, you can put your hand there. But you also note the the guy, you know, Vedana, Chitta, Dhamma, you know, Dolphor. So you can note pain or pleasure or calm. You can note thoughts of the past or future. You can note the hindrances, liking, disliking, drowsiness, distraction, doubt. You can note the senses, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. And uh, if there's nothing else there, you just go back to the stomach because you're always breathing. You have to breathe to survive. Why do I get stronger concentration with your method than with other techniques, even though you say that it is focused on mindfulness, not concentration? Well, there should be stronger concentration, but um, sometimes the, what you describe as stronger concentration isn't directly related to this practice or isn't, um, isn't the sort of, sort of concentration that we're looking for. So... I mean, whether or not that's the case, I can't judge from from just what you say. But uh, one reason why this meditation practice tends to be stronger than others is because it's more concrete. Some techniques will tell you not to use a mantra, but um, so so there's less of a structure and less of a certainty about what you should be doing how you should be directing your mind and it's kind of nebulous kind of vague and so it's not as sharp or as precise or as certain and so there's less potentially less confidence uh, less of a connection with reality whereas the mantra is quite valuable at keeping you connected with the experience and 
and also at arm's length in the sense of not making more out of the experience. It keeps you from delving into the experience, getting caught up in it. If you just shut it down with seeing, like you see something and you just say seeing, well, you've shut it down. There's there's no more conversation. You don't, Your mind doesn't start to extrapolate about it because it just experiences that, is that seeing, it as seeing without making more of it than that. But that being said, I mean, there's different kinds of concentration, and you really should just note them if you notice them, if you feel concentrated, calm, for example, if your mind feels quiet. That's not really the fruit that we're looking for, but it's not it's not bad or wrong. It's just something that you should be noting as well. As, because the point is that it's impermanent. That sort of thing comes and goes. And if you cling to it or, or get some idea about it being the goal or something, then you'll always be caught off guard when it goes, when it isn't able to be produced on demand. How can we practice Shila on a daily basis, and how do we really know which act is in accordance with the Dhamma? Well, there are two levels of sila, I suppose. The the first is conventional, and you, you practice that by keeping the precepts. You don't kill, you don't steal, you don't lie, you don't cheat, you don't take drugs or alcohol. And the other level is on the, the practical or the meditative level, and that's um, the um, ordered nature of the mind or the the sort of, let's say, controlled nature of the mind or the restricted nature of the mind, restrained nature of the mind, and that comes from mindfulness. So mindfulness is what restrains. Sati desang niwarayang. Sati is the, sati or mindfulness is the restrainer of all, the Buddha said, all streams, all connections, all leaks. The mind, it stops the mind from leaking out or, you know, the meaning is reacting or um, extrapolating or getting lost in conception and so on. Mindfulness keeps the mind restrained. And that's a sila from the perspective of meditation practice. So you should do those two things. You should keep the precepts, but you should also try and be mindful throughout your day. And that keeps your mind focused on reality, keeps you from reacting and getting caught up in emotion it keeps you from getting upset and ultimately keeps you from breaking the precepts anyway so it's the most valuable thing i have a habit of taking deep and long breaths when i become anxious and feel tightness in my chest i also note the anxiety is there anything wrong with using the breath to calm the anxiety so given it's a habit, you should just note it when it happens because it'll happen without you intentionally triggering it. But you shouldn't try to intentionally trigger it, not when you have mindfulness. Mindfulness is going to be superior to to uh, intentionally triggering that uh, reflex. So when it happens, try and be mindful about it. Don't try and stop it. But also don't try to encourage it. Don't cultivate liking or attachment to the feeling of calm that comes from it. Um, you'd be much better served by just trying to be mindful and 
noting naturally. It's much less contrived and much less uh, dependent, you know, because it, mindfulness is something you can apply to the anxiety, you can apply to calm, so it makes you more flexible. And being flexible, of course, makes you less anxious. You're less afraid of what might happen because you're flexible. You're able to confront and deal with whatever comes. In mindfulness, vipassana, meditation, unlike samatha, which uses a concept, the object is an experience of reality, such as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and thinking. We say seeing is an object of reality, but in seeing a dog, describing what you see, dog is a concept. However, if you note walking, pain, or liking, describes the feeling. They are considered objects of reality, not concepts just as feeling is. Also, with progress as the true nature of reality is known, are not all objects seen as concepts, including the six senses, as nothing really exists, and therefore no rebirth? I'm going to just ignore the first part. That's not really a question. I don't quite, um, I think you're just thinking a lot about, I mean, don't, don't think, don't you don't have to think so much about what things are. Just try and note them. But, um, you're wrong about the next part. So you, you've added premises here that you seem to assume that I'm going to agree with. Um, nothing really exists is not correct. That's not accurate. I mean, clearly something does exist. Seeing exists, hearing exists, feeling exists, thinking exists, liking and disliking all exist. I mean, they clearly do exist. As, as much as it's worth, I mean, whatever that word means, the only the only the only meaning it really has in an ultimate sense is it's experienced you experience seeing you experience hearing there's an experience of these things to that extent they exist i mean i'm not sure how else you would define the word exists um as for rebirth rebirth is an integral part well not rebirth but the process of birth and death is an integral part of this we're born and die every moment Seeing is born and seeing dies. Hearing is born, hearing dies. It, it arises and ceases. So it's called kanika marna. There's death at every moment. So your question, uh, are not all objects seen as concepts? Uh, no. No, there are clearly things that aren't concepts and things that are. Things that are not concepts are the five aggregates or the six senses. Uh, things which are are pretty much everything else. So when we note walking, um, what, what, what you're talking about when you say use the word walking is the sensation, the, the movement of the foot. When you say liking, you're referring to the experience of liking, the, the pull of the object, the pull or the inclination towards the object. When you note pain, well, you're you're referring to the pain. <laughs> pain is pretty clearly existent. To avoid unnecessary meetings in my office, I sometimes resort to saying something that is not true. I often say I have a doctor's appointment, which doesn't harm anyone. Is this detrimental? Yes, it's deceitful. 
you are robbing that person of access to reality you are distorting reality for your own purposes that's antithetical to mindfulness which seeks to uh, cultivate uh, a connection with reality so it's very bad karma to lie because of uh, how it distorts reality it's deceptive it's dishonest you don't have to be dishonest try and find ways to do it honestly Once you have said that the world doesn't really exist, can you explain? Well, I don't know when I said that. Um, maybe in context, the world is just a word, right? Um, I guess a way in which, I mean, the world does exist. This just means what world are you talking about? There's something called Sankara Loka, which is the uh, world of formations. And that's certainly very real. That's just the world of experiences. The thing is that the world is, in that sense, just made up of experiences, and that's what's really real. But the earth as a as a big thing that we live on as beings, that's all conceptual. That's that, that's not the kind of thing that can exist. It, it, it arises in the mind. What I mean by it not being the, thing, the sort of thing that can exist is you can't experience it. So again, going back to this definition of that which exists is, is experience. Outside of experience, it's all extrapolation. We don't know that we are not just um, hooked up to a virtual reality machine and all of our sensations are just being fed to us by a, a computer. We don't know, and we, it's not the kind of thing we can know. And that's important psychologically because it'll never be of real value as a, as an experience you'll never you'll never be able to gain understanding and and uh, an appreciation of reality through that that's what that's what's important it's not really a philosophical discussion of what exists and what doesn't exist it's a, about the immediacy of experience that allows us to see the three characteristics when you focus on what we call reality experiences you actually do get feedback directly. It's not conceptual. It's not something you made up in your mind, like the idea of the earth, which is always the same. You, know, you think about it again, oh, it's still the earth. Yeah. Just like people. People, you can think about them. You think about this person, you think, oh, this person is like this and like that, and, like, and, and this is how they look, and this is how they talk, and this is how they think. And those kind of things, because they're not real, I mean, I mean, you can see how they're not real because they can therefore catch you off guard when that person looks a different way, talks a different way, thinks a different way. When when that person acts in a way that you don't expect, you can see the, the disconnect or the dissonance between concepts of people and places and things and reality. When the person dies, it's such a shock because where did they go? When you, you think of the person as just being gone. But the person was never there in the first place. And that shock is because of this dissonance with reality. If you're in touch with, in tune with experiences, you would see that, it, that uh, it's unpredictable, it's unstable, and you would never be caught off guard. You'd be flexible. You'd be able to adapt. You wouldn't 
you wouldn't be stuck on people and places and things so that that's what's important it's it's not about philosophically does the earth exist or does it not it's about the fact that it's not something you can experience makes it irrelevant spiritually irrelevant from a perspective of mindfulness it's very relevant practically to live your life and know that you can walk down the street and go to your job or school or go home and that sort of thing these things are practically valuable in a worldly sense but not spiritually They're not on the level of ultimate reality. That's more important than saying they don't exist. Is there consciousness in Parinibbana? Yeah, I wouldn't worry about that. Parinibbana is what happens when a person lets go, when a being is completely let go and has no more greed, anger, and delusion. Not something you really have to worry about. What you should be concerned with is greed, anger, and delusion. And you should ask yourself honestly whether they are valuable or not, rather than worrying about what happens when you let go of them. And the most important thing is to understand how these are not valuable things. And to understand that you erroneously give rise to greed, anger, and delusion to your own detriment. And when you see that clearly, you start to disincline towards it. And therefore you have less greed, less anger, less delusion. That's what's important. Is the physical universe, like atoms, made out of consciousness or is the physical universe actually separate? Well, we got a lot of lower tier questions, I see. Nobody have any questions that are practical? Like, what importance is this? This is not important, this question. This is, I don't know, tier, well, okay, tier two, but I would, I would be leaning towards, I'm not going to answer it, sorry. I mean, I could, it's just not really relevant, I mean, it's not that there's not so much an answer. It's that I want to kind of ask you, is this, the, this is the most important question you could think to ask. That's what I want to say about this. So if you don't have any questions, that's okay. That's just, uh, we can just be mindful. Then we do have more questions, as you guessed, in the second tier. Hmm. All right, well, if they're about Buddhism, let's talk. Go ahead. You can go ahead. Don't worry about asking them. I'll just maybe say I'm not going to answer. Okay. If one attains Sotapanna, are they reborn as Sotapanna, or do they have to attain it again in the next life as well? Perhaps no, it's just no. easier to attain in the next life? No. Sotapanna is a one-way trip. person has let go and uh, they're never, never going to What's the term? The, the, the Ratana Sutta, if you read the Ratana Sutta, it describes the uh, fact that they will not be born for the seventh time. Atamam na. I can't think of the Pali, but they, don't, they aren't reborn for an eighth time. 
And uh, yes, when they're reborn, wherever they are reborn, they are still a sotapanna. That's what it means. You've attained the stream. Do concepts differ in their reliability? For example, that no more delusion can come up in an arhant must be a reliable concept. Right. I mean, th those are uh, ideas, I guess. I mean, it's not really what I would, I wouldn't use the word concept to describe that. I guess it, it, the English word fits, but it's more of a theory or a doctrine or, or a claim that no more delusion can come up in an arahant. So I might ask, might rephrase it. I think a good question might be, are, are truths or ideas or claims more valuable than the other? Or reliable? I don't know quite what you mean by reliable, I guess. Must be a reliable concept. Yeah, I don't skip, I think. Should I leave a neighbor who is harassing me so they avoid generating bad karma? That's a that's a more practical question. I mean I, I like that. That one's okay. Still probably not quite tier one, I suppose, but but okay, there's you got an issue. A dilemma. So with dilemma, worldly dilemmas, you often find answers through being mindful. I would recommend doing that. And I think in mindfulness, you would find your answer that harass, a neighbor harassing you is just another experience you're having. And your your best result is going to come from approaching it mindfully. And I would say the answer is generally not to leave. If someone asks you to leave, you have to consider their request or their desire for you to leave. But if they're just harassing you, I mean, leaving isn't going to stop you from being harassed. It isn't going to stop them from being a harassing sort of person. You really only benefit the world in, in, a, in a fundamental way through mindfulness. So if you approach these confrontations or these experiences mindfully and and also in regards to people as a as a supportive practice you send out good thoughts wishing them well may they be happy without any expectations that they're going to change and you'll find there's great benefit at least for yourself in that you gain more peace of mind but you generally tend to affect the people around you i mean they're going to get tired if you don't react What does Buddhism say about keeping dogs as pets, or in general about pet animals? Well, I don't know so much about the text saying one way or another. I think rescue animals are probably okay, probably in line with the texts. I do know that my teacher was seemed to be of the inclination to not try and mess around with animals. They're, they're too complicated. Uh, if you notice how pet owners often end up killing their animals, they call it putting down, but it's, it's a, just a you know, killing at the end of their life. You're, you're, you get into the messy situation of being obligated 
or feeling like feeling obligated to kill you you're not ever obligated to kill but there's a feeling of being obligated to kill or have someone kill pay someone to kill or whatever and um that's uh, un- unwholesome so it's messy and the ideal buddhist situation would be to or response would be to patiently and um attentively care for animals into their old age and it can be very difficult to do sometimes they're not able to walk they defecate themselves that sort of thing not able to eat it can be very painful for them at the end it can be hard to watch hard to live with but that's just the messy nature of of dogs and cats and animals in general they they have painful and um unpleasant lives especially in their old age so it's it's quite messy dealing with animals and and of course then there's the fact that your animals often want to kill dogs are okay with killing and cats are very much in in the in the generally uh, inclined towards killing and that's bad that's a complication that you're going to have to be involved in you're supporting them in that that habit just messy not really something you should incline towards another huge part of the problem with pets in general is the um the burden that they put on you or the, the how they interfere with your ability to meditate they dis- they disturb you in your meditation interrupt you but also they prevent you from leaving so you want to go away to do a meditation course and well you can't because you got to find someone to look after your pet. I've even had people who bring their pets to the meditation center. We've made rare exceptions in, in depending on our situation. Or I guess here in this place we were we have the ability to let people bring their pets, but it's quite a disturbance. So I would say it's generally not something you want to take on. If you're looking at it as helping living beings, you'd be far better served more efficiently to help human beings. There's a lot of human beings out there that need help physically, but of course, more valuably emotionally or or mentally or spiritually. When I meditate, sometimes boredom comes, and sometimes I associate it with warm and pleasant feelings. Is it possible to be attached to boredom? What is the cure? Yeah, I mean, it's possible to be attached to warm and pleasant feelings. That's more likely something than being attached to boredom. Boredom can can be something you're attached to as a habit. It's sort of a defense mechanism, well, not a defense mechanism, but a a reaction kind of a defense mechanism it's your way of dealing with uh, an unpleasant situation is to get angry at it to dislike it which manifests itself as what we call boredom but uh, well you should read our booklet if you haven't and understand that we're not in the business of trying to cure things because simply because that perspective prevents cure it keeps you attached. When you want to cure, when you're looking for a cure, when you're trying to cure, 
that's all going to impact your perspective. It's going to prevent you from really letting go and therefore prevent the cure. So the way you should look at things is as objects of experience to be understood. Dukkang aryasachang parinyayanti me bhikkhuvi. Buddha saw that the truth of suffering is to be fully understood. That's the that's the focus of our practice. So try and note and understand the boredom, the thing that you're bored of, the warm and pleasant feelings, any attachments that arise. Just note them as they arise without trying to cure them. Is being injured from a natural disaster or something outside one's control a result of karma? How do you avoid blaming yourself? Well, avoid is, without even looking at the context of your question, again, avoid is outside of what is proper. If you're trying to avoid, you're just going to cultivate more aversion. So rather than trying to avoid, try and note the blaming. If you are blaming yourself, just note that. As for the question of being injured, um, a result of karma, karma is very hard to understand. All that you can say about karma is it is efficacious, meaning it has an effect. As for what past karmas led you or, or impacted where you are today, uh, it's very complicated and hard to see, say. All it means is that there's a mental component. If you look at the physical, if you asked physically what were the steps that led up to being here, it would also be very complicated but mentally adds a whole other realm to it. And it, it's really hard to tell what mentally led us to be where we are today. Of course, because karma is all on the mental side. It's your mental state of mind when you do or say or think things. So suffice to say it's complicated. It's not really what you should be focusing on. You should focus instead on what you're doing now, your actions, your speech, your thoughts, how you react to being injured. So blaming yourself, that's bad karma. That's something you should be vigilant about noting and letting go of. In bodily fracture or sickness, it is hard to be constantly mindful. The body is weakened and the mind is weakened with it when you need it most. What would be your advice in this scenario? Well, it's hard to be constantly mindful anyway. I wouldn't try to blame it too much on bodily fractures or sickness. Sickness can be can make things more challenging, but um, it, it is a skill. That, I mean, it's part of the skill that you have to develop. So do your best. My advice would be to be mindful as best you can and cultivate the skill of it. Cultivate the skill of it before you get sick or before your body fractures, whatever that means. Um, before that happens, try and be skilled. It's just like, how do you be mindful at death? Well, the best way is to be skilled at being mindful before you die. So right now is the best time to meditate. But you can apply it during sickness. It's just more challenging and perhaps less fruitful. On the other hand, sickness can be a great 
trigger for real enlightenment when you see that the body is not worth clinging to. So if you really are vigilant and okay, they're skilled at it, you can use it to your advantage and benefit. During meditation, the room appears to spin, and the vantage or reference point in regards to the body seems to disappear or drop lower into the body and gets too overwhelming to note. What causes this? We're not so concerned about causes. If that happens, you should just note it. One thing I would say about this one in particular is um, it, it often relates to the weakening of attachment to concepts because the room, uh, the body, these are all conceptual. They're only ideas you have in your mind. They're not related directly to experience. If you're sitting very still, the experiences that hint to you, the shape of your body, the presence of the room, they all disappear. They all cease. They're, they're just ideas you have in the mind. They're just... Um, extrapolations based on your experiences but when you have your eyes closed when you're not moving they can come and go and when they're gone your mind starts to uh, reach out to try and make these connections but without the stimuli they become distorted so there's this spinning it's a temporary sort of thing but it often happens it's kind of a good sign in that way it's not a good thing that you should cling to but it's a sign that you're kind of letting go or weakening your attachment to these uh, these conceptions, this rigid idea of the world around you, the body and uh, that you live in, as being some kind of real and solid entity, you realize that oh yeah, these were just in my mind, and now look at how distorted they are. These are this obviously isn't real. The room obviously isn't spinning, but this is the mind's. Uh, extrapolation. I have a worldly dilemma that I am tired a lot. I am burnt out from work. I want to understand whether this tiredness is simply cause and effect or a defiled mind. How do I identify it as a hindrance or not? Uh, you you don't have to identify it as a hindrance or not. You, you're just wanting to understand is wanting. It's not relevant. That doesn't mean you should try to understand. That understanding, um, yeah, just because you want something doesn't make it valuable. You should say to yourself, wanting, wanting. Whether it's a hindrance or not doesn't really matter. Uh, if you're tired, you're just not tired. Tired. It is in fact a hindrance, but. Um, Wanting is also a hindrance. So you should just note them both, wanting and tired. Burnt out sounds like there might be something else there. There might be aversion, disliking, depression, that sort of thing. You should note those as well. Note as best you can. I mean, uh, there's no trivializing this work. Worldly work is uh, is a burden. And I appreciate that that can be a real challenge. So you know, all I, can, I, mean, I can't fix that for you, and no one can. You just have to do your best. And, and to be encouraged by the fact that your interest in Buddhist meditation and 
interest in these things is is far above and beyond what most people have interest in. The majority of the world is drinking alcohol and taking drugs to fix their problems. That's the majority. Uh, or, or at the very least, seeking out entertainment and diversion and distraction. But you're asking these questions and pr- hopefully practicing a little bit of mindfulness is such a powerful and, and life-changing thing. Don't, don't, uh, don't disparage the goodness that you have. And you should appreciate that you have qualities that are enviable and are powerful and will lead you in, in a good direction. It may not be pleasant, but there's nothing pleasant really about letting go. It's withdrawal. Um, well, like the, the process of the process that leads you to let go is generally, uh, well, it's not that it's unpleasant, it's challenging, it's uncomfortable. You have to understand the difference between uncomfortable and unpleasant. Uncomfortable means it's not what you're used to. It's it's foreign. It's uh, unfamiliar. That makes it uncomfortable. And mindfulness will generally take you out of your comfort zone. That's important. So don't be discouraged by that, but be encouraged by the fact that you're trying to see clearly and you're working on giving up the judgmental and uh, clingy side of the mind that is only causing you stress and suffering. Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour. You've answered every question in the top tier. Okay. Well, thank you all for your questions. Uh, I'm telling you, try and... uh, if you don't have questions, it's okay. We can just sit and be mindful. But uh, try and and ask ask the important questions. If you have questions about your practice, let's work on those. The, the secret is, if you don't have questions, that's generally a good sign. So don't worry about it. If you don't have questions, don't feel like there's something wrong. Then that's that's a you're one up on people who still have questions potentially, unless you're just dull and disinterested, then that's a problem. But if you are mindful and you understand mindfulness, then you're one up. You can just spend this whole session listening and noticing. You can even just note hearing. hearing. You should be happy with that. So don't worry about asking questions. But if you have questions, let's ask questions about that are important to you. Well, they're really going to be valuable and, and help your practice. Okay, but thank you all. I always appreciate that people have questions for me. I mean, anyone should be humbled by people thinking that they have something to tell them. So I certainly appreciate that people ask me questions. So thank you. And thank you for your interest and for your dedication to uh, Buddhism and our meditation tradition and our meditation group as well so wish you all peace happiness and freedom from suffering and all of the best things that exist in the world thank you chris and jim and whoever else was helping today and all the volunteers that go into making this broadcast possible sad who i think